0: Thanks to Datasite One from Merrill Corporation for sponsoring this episode of Industry Focus. Datasite One is the market-leading due diligence app for the entire M&A life cycle, helping companies worldwide close more deals faster. To learn more and sign up for a free demo, go to MerillCorp.com/fool. Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, July 29th. I'm your host, Jason Moser, and we've got a lot to get to today on this show. As we recap the latest earnings from the big banks, we're going to get to a couple of listener questions here on payments and crypto. and uh, We're going to roll some some ones to watch into those emails as well. Uh, And Joining me in the studio back from his vacation in sunny Key West. And he's a year older, folks. Certified financial planner, <laughs> Mr. Matt Frankel. Matt, how's it going?
1: Pretty good. It was good to be back in my old hometown. We we lived in Key West for five years, and it was good to show the kids where
0: Mom and Dad met and all that good stuff. You know, I, I feel like I jumped the gun, and I probably said uh, back from sunny Key West, assuming that it was sunny, but I got to believe it was pretty good weather. Oh, it was beautiful,
1: and it, it, you, you're from South Carolina, so you know how hot the summers could be here. Oh yeah, it was actually cool. It was actually cooler down in Key West than it was here. Well,
0: you probably get a nice, uh, nice little breeze off the ocean there, huh?
1: About 88 degrees and island breezes every day. It was really nice.
0: Sounds like my kind of place. <laughs> <laughs> well, while you were gone, um, you know we had a lot of the banks here who have reported earnings. The big banks, at least, got us kicked off here for earnings palooza. Um, we had reports from Wells Fargo, J.P. Morgan, Citigroup, uh, you name it, and, and um, Bank of America. Um, you know, and we were talking about leading into this earnings season, um, a lot of a lot of the theme centered really around share buybacks and this. I guess, a little bit more of a challenging environment with lower interest rates, uh, but wanted to get your take uh, on on how these big banks are faring thus far. What did you think about their reports?
1: Well, all in all, it was a pretty good quarter. Um, all four of the big banks beat on earnings. Most, most beat on revenue. Um, efficiency was great across the board. Um, I mean, returns are doing well. I mean, tax reform had some boost to that, but I mean, J.P. Morgan, for example, ran a sixteen percent return on equity. If you're doing that, you're doing something right. Um, <laughs> but there were some causes for concern. Um, loan growth was pretty slow across the boards, which is could be a troubling sign that the economy is slowing down a little bit. Um, there's um, J.P. Morgan's consumer loan portfolio actually declined. Deposit loan deposit growth slowed down, and most of all, uh, interest margins are contracting. Now, that's somewhat to be expected, because yeah. you know, the market long-term interest rates have fallen a little bit um, in anticipation of the Fed lowering rates. So, when long-term interest rates fall, like, say, the bank can't charge as much for an auto loan, you would expect its profit margin to go down a little bit. So, um, the magnitude of the interest margin drop kind of caught investors by surprise. Like, Bank of America um, completely missed its its projections for uh, interest margin. JP Morgan reduced its full year guidance for interest income. So that was a bit of a disappointment. But other than that, I mean, interest rates will rise and fall over time. You can't really do anything about it. So banks are doing well from a long term investor's perspective. Uh, interest rates might squeeze margins a little bit more in the near term.
0: Yeah, and I, I mean, I think you're right. Generally, it did seem like it seemed like leadership for the most part was bullish on the consumer. They felt like it was a good consumer environment. And so, uh, you know, that comes and goes as well. I mean, just to put a little context around the share buybacks, I was looking through these banks to put some numbers around it. Citigroup spent three and a half billion dollars in the quarter on buybacks. J.P. Morgan spent five billion dollars on repurchases. Wells was about five billion as well, and then Bank of America six and a half billion dollars in buybacks. Um, it's so I think that kind of it kind of goes along with the theme that you were you were talking about here a couple of weeks ago, and given that these banks really all just got the green light to buy back even more stock, um, not not terribly surprising. Now I mean that's always I think part of the thesis with investing in banks is that they uh, you know are going to return some value to shareholders in the form of buybacks and dividends. I, I just I, I'd rather see them. You know, raise those dividends a little bit more, but but either way, I mean, they're going to have an effect um, on on that that bottom line uh, pricing that we're getting as shareholders.
1: Yeah, and um, the banks, especially, like you said, they're buying back stocks so quickly. I'm um, just kind of to name one example: Citigroup uh, grew its earnings 12% year over year, but it reduced its outstanding shares by 10% year over year. So, in other words, almost all of its earnings growth can be Trace back to the buyback itself, and not right. actual growth. I mean, their their loans grew by one percent, deposits grew by two percent, margins, like I said, actually dropped. So it's not like Citibank's doing twelve percent better than they were last year. It's just they bought back a ton of stock, so there's you know less shares to distribute their profits amongst.
0: Yeah, and I think also you know Citigroup is the one that stood stood out to me just because of you know looking back in history. I mean, you go back to. Two thousand eight, nine, ten. Where I mean, these banks were really in a, in a load of trouble. And um, I mean, some listeners may remember that Citibank actually executed a reverse split because their share price was in the tank, um, and they and they needed to do something uh, in order to. To attract new investment and stanch the bleeding a little bit, but you know, I think that back then we were all looking at Citigroup as one of the weaker banks, one of the banks with a little bit more in a bit more of a precarious position. And it's not to say that fast forward to today, it's been a great investment. But by the same token, you look at the ten-year chart for Citigroup. I'm actually I gotta I gotta tip my cap to them for for getting this thing back under control because I mean, you would have made money owning those shares over the last ten years.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think if you look back before the crisis, I think their split-adjusted all-time high is something like $600. So, yeah. they're not quite there yet. But no, the Citigroup, even after the split, was you know a, a small fraction of where it is today. And I mean, if you had told me, not just looking at this, the stock price, but if you had told me 10 years ago that Citigroup was going to be the the most efficient of the big four banks, which it was this quarter, it was 56%, the rest were at 57 or higher. So it was the most efficient bank. It was running a ten percent return on equity, which isn't great, but is good. And I, I would and buying back ten percent of its outstanding shares a year. I would have called you crazy. And look, here we are. <laughs>
0: Here we are, indeed. All right. Well, so I'm going to put you on the spot here with that in mind. Um, looking out three to five years, as as we do when it comes to our investments, if you're looking at these four banks—Citigroup, J.P. Morgan, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America—is there one of those four banks that that comes out of this earning season looking a little bit uh, better to you than the other three?
1: Uh, Bank of America, and I know I'm always on Bank of America's side, and I'll tell you <laughs> why in this case. Uh, Bank of America had, by far, by far, by far, the best loan and deposit growth of all the of all the big four banks.
0: I noticed uh, they, that. something like six percent, wasn't
1: it? Uh, it was four percent loan growth and six percent deposit growth. JP. Yeah. Morgan was second place, and they had two percent loan growth. Man. so and Wells Fargo's obviously not allowed to grow right now. Um, Citigroup, yeah. I just mentioned, grew its loans by one percent. So four percent loan growth in that environment looks pretty good. Um, so, and I, I love Bank of America's management. I think they've done a fantastic job since the crisis. Um, I think they're the biggest turnaround story. Citigroup's done well since the crisis, but Bank of America has, you know, I mean, and you know Warren Buffett just bought a ton of it a few years ago and continues to buy more. Um, there's a reason for that. It's because it's probably the best run of the big four banks right now, in my opinion.
0: Okay, good stuff. Uh, Let's move on over to an email we got from a listener. This comes from Stock Advisor member uh, Gary J. Gary asks, Uh, He says, Hi, from a PayPal, MasterCard, and Square investor. I'm both concerned and curious about the possible effects that cryptocurrency could have on the war on cash stalwarts and fellow travelers. Just the perception of a possible disruption in the digital payment space could be enough to send the stocks tumbling, even if the perception is wrong and the companies behind the stocks are as robust as ever. Uh, Then there's the possible reality that the perception is real can we envision a world where the digital payment companies peacefully and profitably coexist with cryptocurrency or is that world unlikely to emerge in the next 10 or 15 years and matt i wanted to bring this in because you know we get to talk a lot about crypto and payments uh on this show and and i, and I like the question because i guess when i when i think about the payment space i think cryptocurrency to me, is addressing a different need or a different issue. Um, I I can certainly see a world where they peacefully coexist. I don't see a world, necessarily, where crypto is supplanting these payment companies, but that's just my point of view. What's your take?
1: Well, I think it's actually kind of incorrect logic to think of the, the payments companies and cryptocurrencies as two different things. Um, if you look at Square, Square integrated Bitcoin trading over a year ago, and Jack Dorsey is a big fan of cryptocurrencies. So, and um, the other ones you mentioned, Visa, PayPal, MasterCard, I believe all three of those are partnering with Facebook for its new Libra cryptocurrency. Right. So, all th- these companies know that cryptocurrencies are a real thing. They know that there's some future potential, whether you love the current cryptocurrencies or not. They know there's definitely future potential in digital assets like that. And are they're not just sitting on their heels right now, they're actively making investments in blockchain technology, actively looking at ways that cryptocurrencies can be integrated into their existing businesses. So, I don't think of them as two different things or even things that would have to coexist. I think that, I mean, if, if it turns out that cryptocurrencies really start gaining traction, they're going to be a big part of the four companies we just mentioned.
0: Wow, that's a very good way to look at it. Um, to me I, I look at crypto and I think when we look at Facebook Libra for example and the 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 intentions there, and I think it's really important to note that this is not off the ground yet, and they're under a lot of scrutiny for this. I'm a little bit skeptical that it even really materializes, to be honest with you. But on the flip side, you know, I don't think there's any downside at all for these companies like PayPal and Visa investing. I mean, that's just a nominal investment on their part that if it doesn't pan out, it doesn't pan out. It's not going to affect them at all. And it's just a rounding error. Um, But I mean, the intentions there with Facebook Libra, at least. Uh, are to focus more on the unbanked and underbanked, and making the costs of of moving money, bringing the costs of moving money uh, down. Now, that that all depends on where you're trying to move that money, right? I mean, I think in today's day and age, whether it's Square or PayPal or Mastercard or Visa or any of these other payments companies, the cost for moving money around, uh, that cost is coming down considerably and quickly. Um, but but to your point, I mean, it, it does it does seem like. All of those companies are at least giving cryptocurrency some attention, thinking that it will be a part of our future in in some way.
1: Yeah, I especially think it'll have a lot to do with how they how we process payments internationally. Yeah, um, I don't know if you saw the story about MoneyGram that's partnering. To, uh, I think it's Ripple they're partnering with to um, pretty much process all their overseas transfers because it's so much cheaper and quicker that way. Yeah. Um, so, so I mean. In that sense, a cryptocurrency could actually be a money saver to those companies. You know, Visa can charge their, you know, customers less for international transfers and still make a higher profit margin if the transfer is actually being done with a, a digital asset as opposed to a traditional method like a wire transfer.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, I guess the bottom line there for Gary, and I think maybe you and I are thinking the same thing here, is that as cryptocurrency evolves and becomes whatever it becomes I don't necessarily see it as a threat to these companies, these payments companies, um, as much as I see it as being just another part of a of a holistic solution.
1: Yeah, I think that's what we're saying. They're like, they're, they're not they're not necessarily two separate entities. One, could, I mean, cryptocurrencies could actually help the companies. It could be one and the same.
0: Yep. Very good. Okay. So, Gary, I hope that answers your question. I'm not selling my war on cash investments, big guy, and I'm not uh, you know, I'm not uh, too sure that you should worry about yours either. Uh, before we continue, I want to say thanks again to Datasite One from Merrill Corporation for sponsoring this episode of Industry Focus. Datasite One is the market-leading due diligence app for the entire M&A lifecycle, helping companies worldwide close more deals faster. With Datasite One, new projects can be set up in minutes, giving you simple, intuitive uploading and document organization with drag-and-drop controls to organize your data room, not to mention powerful tools for managing folder and document access permissions. Multi-level controls and permissions prevent accidental information sharing and advanced watermarking provides added security to documents. Data Site One's dashboard and visual analytics give you quick access to key performance indicators through visual dashboards letting you stay ahead of your deal. And filters help you drill down into documents. Use and roles, and even Q&A activity to spot opportunities and obstacles. To learn more about Datasite One and sign up for a free demo, go to Merilcorp.com/fool. Speak to an expert at Datasite One like our team did and learn how to accelerate your due diligence. Again, that's merrillcor fool to sign up for a free, personalized demo. We thank Merrill Corp for their support. Okay, Matt. We're going to dive into our one to watch this week, our ones to watch this week. But we're going to do a little something different because we got another email from a a listener out there, and it seemed like this fit perfectly into uh, this segment here. We got a, the email is from Melissa Brown. And Melissa writes, "Hi Jason and Matt, I'm a huge fan of the show, and I'm just going to leave it right there, Matt. I'm not going to finish the email because that just made me feel so good, in that she's a huge fan of the show. We can just leave it right there. I think right." <laughs> no, I'll finish <laughs> up. Okay. I'm a huge fan of the show and I really appreciate all of the great help you both provide us investors. So I started my own war on cash basket with Square a while back, and then I added uh PagSeguro and StoneCorp at the beginning of the year. I was wondering if maybe you could do an international or South American payments podcast. I know one of the industry-focused podcasts talked about Mercado Libre and the move they're making in payments. Unfortunately, I missed out on Mercado Libre, but PagSeguro Digital and StoneCo both also appear to be great high-growth companies in the payment space. I would love to hear your thoughts on those three and any others you're interested in. Thanks, Melissa, for the kind words and for the questions there. And I'll go ahead and get in front of Mercado Libre first because we have talked about that one I think a number of times and um, we can certainly find some back episodes to to really support our, our ongoing belief in that business and the different ways that it makes money. Uh, but we are going to focus here on PagSeguro and Stoneco for you. And Matt, I'm going to kick it over to you first. Talk a little bit about Stoneco and and what your thoughts on this uh, this investment idea are.
1: Yes, yeah, Stoneco is definitely one to watch over the next few years. Um, you might have heard us mention it on the show before. Um, late in 2018, Warren Buffett, or more specifically Berkshire Hathaway, bought an 11% stake in the company. It was yeah. really one of the you know the other stock pickers, not Buffett who did it. But we mentioned it in that context. It's a Brazilian fintech company that does payment processing. Like uh, they provide uh, point of sale terminals to businesses, things like that. It is just growing like a weed. Um, revenue was up eighty-six percent over the past year. Um, payment volume up sixty percent. The margins are improving, which they call the take rate. That's the different. That's you know, the the percentage of the transactions that they actually pocket. And it's profitable, unlike some of these, you know, fo- uh, foreign fintech companies that you're seeing. Um, they actually had pretty good earnings this past quarter. So, this is definitely one to watch going forward. Not just because it's a Buffett stock, but that should definitely make you take a look and ask why it was good enough for Berkshire. Um, they're not known for you know betting on fintech companies. they're They're known for investing in things that they see real potential in. So I think this is definitely one to watch over the next several years.
0: Okay, good stuff there. And uh, Melissa, I took PAGS Seguro for you. Uh, that ticker is PAGS. PagS is a payment company for micro merchants and small and medium sized businesses, primarily uh, in Brazil. And so I, I sort of I looked through this business and I came I came up with three things that I like. Uh, perhaps one thing you want to keep an eye on. But first thing I like, they're profitable and growing. Um, at the end of 2018, they were growing revenue at a compound annual rate of a little better than 80 percent. Um, and it's a big company, 15 and a half billion dollar market cap with a strong balance sheet, uh, close to $650 million in cash and no debt. Um, it is a fairly new IPO, just got going public uh, a little bit more than a year ago, so that's always uh, worth uh, worth remembering. But I, I also like uh, brand awareness there. It's a very competitive space for sure. Uh, and they state in their annual report specifically that PayPal and Mercado Pago are competitors. Now, according to Google Trends in August 2017, for every 100 Google searches, for the term PagSeguro, there were 21 for the term Mercado Pago, and 23 for the term PayPal. So, it does seem like uh, PAGS euro certainly has some brand awareness there, which I think matters when you're going up against companies like uh, PayPal and Mercado Pago. Um, and, and the numbers are impressive. I mean, looking through their last uh, conference call, their total payments volume uh, reached 24.4 Brazilian Reals. Uh, they, let me see here. They ended the quarter with 4.4 million active merchants, adding 1.3 million new clients year-over-year. So, so, I mean, there's a lot of encouraging data there that that tells us the company is growing. We know they're pursuing a big market opportunity in the payment space. I think. You know, one thing for investors to keep in mind: it is a bit of a convoluted organizational structure. Um, The entity UOL or Universo Online owns 94% of the voting power of the company, and it's not even really to necessarily say that's a bad a bad thing. Um, UOL has a lot of resources at its disposal, but the bottom line is, you know, this is a Brazilian company with an an involved ownership structure, and sometimes they can make it difficult to connect the dots uh, when it comes to decision making and strategy. So, all in all, I mean. I think this is a compelling idea. I, ju- I think it's one where a little bit of exposure can probably go a long way. So you want to make sure you position size this one appropriately, right, Matt?
1: Yeah, I would echo that for Stoneco as well. Um, I, you know, um, Berkshire. I mentioned they're they put about three hundred million dollars, which is you know, like for me and you putting point two percent of our portfolio <laughs> into it. Yeah. So be- you know, <laughs> invest accordingly. It's these are. I mean, I said I mentioned it was a profitable company, but that's not to say it's not a high risk play. So just invest
0: accordingly. All right, very good, Melissa. I hope that helps, uh, Matt. We're going to wrap it up here. Uh, before I go, before we go, um, you know, I did want to let people know to tune in next week because. Matt's got a fun interview here in the pipeline for us. We can't talk about it much further than that right now, but just uh, keep an eye out there for for next Monday's episode of Industry Focused Financials, and you're going to get to hear Mr. Frankel talking with uh, an executive at a company that we've covered here before on the show. Matt, anything else you want to add?
1: No, yeah, my, my My lips are sealed on that one. <laughs> I'm not, I was sworn to secrecy.
0: Yep, I hear you. Well, we'll leave it at that. Matt, thanks so much for joining us this week. Good talking to you again.
1: Always good. Always good to be here.
0: As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Dan Boyd. For Matt Frankel, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.